0: All right, welcome back to the Presidential Podcast. This is Philip, And this is Robert. We're back on Jackson. And we just finished uh, talking about his first term and the nullification crisis that happened in South Carolina. Do you want to know, I think... And then we spoke about how he um, went to Harvard. And this was after his re-election. He goes to Harvard and he... Surprises them all or charms them all with his famous "E pluribus unum." Why don't we go into? Why don't you go into the next um, important thing that all you right. want to so, highlight from Mr. Uh,
1: what we wanted to discuss was the um, the ending of the national bank and Jackson's role in uh, decentralizing the national currency. So, uh, go into a, a little bit of a background for the listeners. Um, we tend to think of money as being pretty stable. Um, even if we don't have uh, money to take out of our pockets or our wallets, we've all seen it. We all have a good idea of, of what it is and we all have a sense that money is valuable and if we look at uh, currency you know reach into the pocket and pull out a bank note we see the familiar face of washington lincoln uh, hamilton jackson uh different national leaders grant franklin and denominations and we're very accustomed to uh, paying for goods with money or with credit cards which uh, debit our bank accounts and keep us in the currency mode and most of us I think are pretty good at pricing uh, different things so what do we, what do we think gas costs? A gallon, gallon. yeah. $2.79? Two seventy nine. Two seventy nine for a gallon of gas. Uh, milk. How
0: much a gallon? Gallon. Here 3 dollars Three ninety nine.
1: New York. Uh, tea.
0: Um, if you buy loose tea, you can buy like maybe an eight ounce container for like four or five dollars.
1: Okay, four or five. That's a little uh, imprecise, but okay. Um, pants or a shirt.
0: You're buying pants say so you buy a pair of slacks at Macy's on sale $29.99.
1: Okay, so we have pretty precise and fluent ideas about the relative value of goods. And we can correlate that to our, our earnings quite quickly, uh, whatever our, our wages or our salaries are. It's, it, we're pretty well practiced in pricing things out and figuring what we can, what we should be buying. You know, our electric bill, our car payments, our uh, mortgage payments, our rent payments, tuition bills, any, anything that comes up, we have a very clear idea of it. Right. But this is not the sort of world that they lived in in the Jacksonian time. So they might have made a dollar for a full day's work mm-hmm. and back then it would have been sundown or sun up to sundown Okay, you know hard labor uh, even if a person was working in an office they didn't have typewriters uh, they didn't have telephones so uh, business records were laboriously written out by hand mm-hmm. uh, with a a quill, they didn't have ballpoints, they didn't even have fountain pens. Um, after the order was written it had to be delivered by messenger mm-hmm. and they had what they called the exchange in in most towns where uh, the business leaders of the town and nearly always men as women were not allowed to own property uh, would would meet and they Uh, Figure out what goods they needed for equipping their enterprises or supplies for their families or things that they wanted to sell in the store. And they'd work out the prices and the the job lots and everything, make the deals, shake their hands on it, and then pay each other, typically in specie, but also in services, in merchandise, and in banknotes banknotes as opposed to currency. So a banknote would be a, in some cases, even a, a note similar to the currency that we use that had a value printed on it. But the thing was, it might be the first national bank of Lexington, Kentucky. They were using that kind of currency in his day? So they were using that kind of currency. And... Part of the idea behind the National Bank was to rationalize the currency system by having a central bank that would underwrite loans or or, uh, coordinate loans among a large group of banks, provide banknotes that would be like the basis of the value of the currency. So, it was the Second National Bank of the United States. Their, their bank note, say, is a dollar. The First National Bank of Lexington, Kentucky, since it's not such a strong bank, their one dollar note might only be worth 50 cents mm. in comparison to the Second National Bank of the United States. Nice. So, uh, having the National Bank, they didn't uh, print their own currency. They didn't imprint, I guess is the word for it, their own currency. They didn't provide coinage. But they did provide uh, a currency that ha- or banknotes, I should say, that had a base value. Did they other- have a
0: department of the Treasury that was printing bill
1: dollar bills? No. No, they didn't start that until the Civil War. They had no dollar bills? They had banknotes. They had- Just from
0: individual banks? Just from
1: individual banks. But if I was
0: going to make a deposit... Would I? Let's say I was going to make a deposit. So if I if I was a if I had let's say I'm a tradesman, okay, and I got and I got Lexington, you know, and I'm a, I don't know a barber, barber, okay, and someone pays me in cash. They're going to pay me in bank notes like from Lexington Bank. Right, so So then I go to another bank and I open my account with in left from Lexington Bank I go to Louisville so Bank sorry. and I give them. A Lexington you're you're bank starting. Notes.
1: You're starting to see the difficulties of it. So, say you're, you're this barber and haircut two bits, okay, 25 cents. Uh-huh. So, somebody comes in, you're thinking of 25 cents in terms of your local bank. He can offer you a gold nugget mm-hmm. or some gold dust. He can offer you a share of some gold or he could say, you know, say he was a salesman and he was traveling and he had just made a deal somewhere else up, up in, in Louisville mm-hmm. and he had some Louisville cash and he said, well, you know, I'll give you some Louisville cash. You would say, okay, it's 25 cents in Lexington cash but I need 50 cents because I have to take it to... I have to take the Louisville bank to the Lex... I have to take the Louisville cash to the Lexington bank and they're going to have to send it back to Louisville and get gold or some other form of reserves from that Louisville bank. And I don't know that it's going to be a one-to-one. There's no fiat bonus. currency there. So there was, there, well, I'm not going to say that it wasn't fiat currency because, you know, once, once we make our deal, no matter what the arbitrage is, it's still fiat currency.
0: What do you mean? If it's backed by gold, then it has a value that's based in that. But not, not but
1: not all the bank deposit not all the bank uh, notes. notes were backed on, on gold. I mean, it could be just based on, on the credit of the bank. Hmm. So, so, and, and and again, that would affect the value of those bank notes. If it was a bank where we knew there could be a one to one correspondence between their issuance of bank notes and the, the amount of, of bullion that they had in their reserves they might exceed the value of the notes issued by the second national bank of the united states which were only partially backed by gold yeah okay so so banking was very complex still nice. <laughs> yes but more 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 back then and you consider the the difficulties of the arbitrage of arbitrage being the exchange of, of the different banknotes their different values and somehow a merchant or a, a currency trader be able to make some kind of money from uh, some kind of profit from that exchange so in in one sense Jackson had kind of a retrogressive idea you know that I don't want a national bank that that gives the banking uh, I don't want to say community, but that gives the Philadelphia bankers too much power. Yeah. So, Jackson wanted it more widely distributed. He wanted the southern banks to have more of an equal footing with the northern banks. He wanted the western banks to have more of a neutral footing with the eastern banks. And they couldn't really uh, deliver a national currency because... We didn't really have the gold reserves at that time. I mean, we, we would have really had to have the gold reserves to issue a, a national currency. I mean, they eventually did that where they had gold coins and they had paper money based on, based on gold. But at this point, they were still using banknotes. So with the national bank, we're moving towards more rational, more uniform banking system. So Jackson wanted to interrupt that, but he also had to substitute some idea of a national bank. So this meant that he needed to get gold reserves that the treasury could hold and then use to to, to back a national currency. So this is a big change in banking and everything. And of course, as, as you might imagine, the Philadelphia banks, which was where the second national bank was located, were very interested in keeping their supremacy in banking. Why was it the Second National Bank? Because there was one before that that went out of business and was superseded by the Second Bank. So the uh, banker in charge of the Second National Bank was a man named uh, Biddle, uh, Nicholas Biddle. Mm -hmm. And he's widely viewed by... Scholars of the Jacksonian period as being one of the most brilliant people who ever uh, lived in, in American public life. Oh, I wow. mean, he was, a, you know, could do everything. Uh, had a had a fabulous mathematical mind and understood commerce, knew the geography of the world. I mean, just just an amazing intellect. And he resented Jackson for. Uh, uh, any number of reasons: class prejudice, prejudice of the East against the South, uh, prejudice against the slave owner, uh, resentment over Jackson's military background and him trying to uh, kind of force things onto onto the more peaceful and more capable merchandising and banking classes. So there was there was a lot of uh, different ways that Jackson and Biddle detested I'm each joking. other, <laughs> clashed, and there's a famous cartoon from the period where uh, Jackson was trying to kill the National Bank, you know, basically uh, tried different, different things, establishing other national banks, parity among the banks, number of things and Biddle fought back and Biddle was very influential you know being a big money man he had a lot of of political influence and uh, Biddle was very successful in fighting back against Jackson pretty much had Jackson politically and legally on the ropes you know Jackson was pretty much beaten and there's a famous cartoon of Jackson being in the White House and very gloomy background and van buren standing there with him and van buren going sir i fear the second national bank will kill you Mm. and jackson in the next panel says van buren the bank might want to kill me but i shall kill it Mm, sounds like jackson And he hit upon the scheme of removing all the federal deposits from the National Bank and forbidding the federal government from placing any more deposits there, which took a big chunk of their reserves out. Because the the federal government... He was allowed to do that? He did it. Because there was no Fed then. Uh, the The Fed, again, came in the progressive age and... Uh, required a complicated change in banking. So Jackson had to set up a National Gold Reserve he had to set up a Department of, of Imprinting so they could issue gold back, paper money, and he had to uh, set up uh, deposits of United States funds with other banks. And these are all complicated things. He did it all? Did it all I mean and, and this is one of the changes in his cabinet uh, Secretary of the Treasury And did and so. the bank did the bank second national bank go down well the the, the, the thing of it is is that the, the government deposits were a significant portion of of their deposits okay. they were very stable I mean government doesn't put money in and take money out in uh impulsive ways and you it's know, so it's, big it's, it's very scheduled so big the law of averages it's, it's, also makes it It's, more it's very big and the government has the power of taxation so you know that the deposits that they put in have their value the government also had bullion stored to back uh their deposits so so the government deposits you know formed a basis you know i'm, I'm going to make up a number say maybe 20 percent of the total deposits, but they were a stable 20%. You know, maybe, you know, just just to say a name, um, the Salmon Bank of Boston, Mm -hmm. or the Cod Bank, let's say, of Boston, since there's cod up there. The Cod Bank of Boston puts, you know, 5% in. Mm -hmm. We don't know about the health of the Cod Bank. So, you know, in negotiating and leveraging and so on, Biddle might be able to use that. But if he has a run on the bank or if he has to back it, and depend on the Cod Bank's deposits as part of his banking. He might be able to get a premium, he might get a discount on it, but he doesn't know its value in right. advance. Whereas with the government funding, he knows the value, he can depend on that in any negotiation or he does. So this was a huge change and what it did was, was freed the currency from the control of the money classes in the East. Wow. And gave the small businesses in the West, uh, presumably the planters in the South, and the factors or the brokers in New York and the other commercial centers gave them a solid currency that they could use without being beholden to a bank. So if I wanted to sell cotton over to a company in England and I told them uh, I want to make so many dollars of it, they could Exchange pounds for dollars at a bank, and and pay it to me. And we all knew what the value was. It didn't change. It's funny to me
0: because it seems like in some ways he he um, diminished the power of the banks, but by the Gilded Age, late eighteen hundreds, bankers were on top again, no? I mean, it's a long
1: process. Um, it was it, it was mainly because the banks gained a bigger and bigger uh, share of the gold reserves. Okay. Okay. I mean, but uh, there were there were new gold discoveries, particularly in northeast Georgia and the Dahlonega area. And uh, the government's power just to basically receive gold from the, the uh, tariffs and other things that allowed the government to build up gold reserves efficiently. To, to back the currency, even if it wasn't 100%, it was a big enough uh, gold reserve that they could issue currency and and say it was backed by gold. So that if somebody came in, said, I need gold for this, uh, they got the value denominated on their bills. Or conversely, if they said, I'm going to give the government my gold, and the government gave them bills, they knew they had bills. Why is that it would called the bank veto? Um, because they they had an, an act to renew the uh, charter hmm. of the uh, second national bank and, and Jackson vetoed right. it, mm-hmm.
0: and then he set up his own,
1: and then he took out the uh, took out the deposits and basically set up a federal system for currency backed by gold. Okay, and um,
0: all right, great. Is there anything else you want to say about that before we move into the Indian policy?
1: Um, we can move on to the Indian policy. All right, so this Indian
0: policy is probably Jackson's most controversial aspect,
1: no? Well, it's, it's not controversial. I mean, we, we know uh, in, incontrovertibly that Jackson was a white supremacist and Jackson was probably also a nativist. And Jackson certainly had uh, chauvinistic ideas about Protestantism and Northern Europeans in contrast to Catholics and uh, Euro- European immigrants stemming from either the Latin countries or from Eastern Europe. So, so Jackson uh, believed in basically a British Protestant white American continent or American nation. Uh, he wasn't quite up to manifest destiny of see the shining sea, but he was definitely expansionist. And he definitely had in mind the idea that American territory would be settled by whites, that if there were other races, primarily the black race, uh, living in the territory of the whites, they would be subservient to whites. I don't think he took it quite as far as, as Roger Taney in the Dred Scott decision, but he certainly believed that it was lawful and right uh, for whites to own blacks. And he, he in, 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 in his retirement, said that his policy of removing the Indians to the West was something he did for their benefit because they would inevitably come into contact with the whites uh, if they stayed in the East, and there would be conflict, and the Indians would eventually be wiped out. So moving them away from the whites was a humanitarian thing to do. So uh, that might be self-serving, and it certainly is wrong uh, to tell people you're a sovereign country, you're living Uh, Next to us, we might surround you, but your country is your country, and then to turn around simply because of the land greed of uh, your farmers to annex their country and remove them physically to a foreign place. How, How much responsibility does Jackson
0: have for the Trail of Tears?
1: Well, he allowed the legislation. Which uh, is the Indian Removal Act? The Indian, Indian Removal Act. He signed it. Uh, and
0: Van Buren was kind of his right-hand man.
1: And Van Buren was his right-hand man, and Van Buren was the one who actually implemented it and sent the army to move the Cherokee. Uh, Did the Cherokee resist? D- no. No, that's part of what makes their uh, response to it and their suffering so noble because they were civilized about the way they responded. Um, Jackson might have resisted implementing it had he gone into the third term. Uh, We'll never know. I mean... uh, Sense was from some of his personal writings that he allowed the act to pass, never dreaming or not planning to have it implemented. Was it uh, poorly?
0: Was it poorly? I mean, was it? I mean, it's bad legislation, right? But is it? Was it poorly executed as well, or it meant to go off the way it went off?
1: So uh, there's a famous. Episode that the the act was declared unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall said you can't do that under the terms of the Constitution. You can't what? Can't remove the Indians. And why? What does it say in the Constitution to say you can't do that? That they're sovereign tribes. Is it in the Constitution? Well. We we had a treaty with them, and a treaty is 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 solid law. I mean, it's just below the constitutional okay. law, so we can't pass a uh, a statute that supersedes the uh, a, a treaty obligation. And we had a treaty with the Cherokee that this was their country, and they got to live here. And what happens? So when he, and, says and, that- and Jackson's response was, "Well, John Marshall has made his ruling." Let's see if John Marshall can enforce it. Mm. So, you know, we can make the argument that Jackson had intended all along to remove the Indians. So there's, there's that big stain against him. And then there's also in, in race, in, in the relationship with the African-Americans, he has a very bad record. He, he sold slaves to uh, pay off debts. He sold slaves to raise money for his campaigns. Uh, he may have sold slaves to finance the war against the Indians, you know, which I think would be really, really, uh, villainous. And in late in his second term, uh, he supported laws which forbade the circulation of abolitionist tracts anywhere in the South, Mm. uh, basically, uh, the postmaster general postmaster of a particular post office you know the post office general what the, the postmaster general I'm sorry the postmaster general is the chief officer for all all the post post offices and it's it's uh, organized so each city had a, a separate postmaster let's say and it was up to the discretion of the postmaster whether right. or not they could circulate abolitionist tracts within his 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 there and this was the way information was distributed back then Mm -hmm. i mean it was all on paper so it had to actually be carried and delivered to people for them to read it Mm -hmm. because there's no electronic right right the the let's
0: say there's no indian removal act do you think the indians and the americans live harmoniously up till now how big was the old Indian lands.
1: Well, they, it, it wasn't so much the size of the Indian lands. I mean, we see the Hopi and Navajo reservations in Arizona and in Mexico, which are ginormous. You know, they're bigger than some of the eastern states. And the Navajo, really? yeah, and the Navajo and the Hopi live on them harmoniously with the surrounding white communities. But the Cherokee held particularly fertile and desirable land. And in, which, in which states, Georgia. Georgia. And uh, what part of Georgia? Kind of like in the middle, okay. in the central, but a little bit in the north. And it was, you know, it's very well watered. It's fertile. It gets a lot of sunshine, so it's very, very good agricultural land. And the Indians had cultivated it, Cherokee had cultivated it, they had improved the land, they had uh, pens and barns for the livestock, they had houses, they had granaries, silos, all that sort of thing. So when the the whites took over the Indian lands, they basically got free infrastructure along with it. And the, the, the Cherokee in particular have done very well out in Oklahoma. And uh, some of the branches of the tribe moved to the mountains in North Carolina, the Great Smokies, and they've done very well. Done well doing what businesses? Uh, farming, They're small business, still. yeah. Uh, but are they also
0: a group? I hate to hate to be stereotypical, but are they also a group that does the casinos
1: or no? No, no. These these are people who work the land. Yeah. Um, the 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 only person who ever individually and personally invented an alphabet was the Cherokee Chief Sequoia, who apparently was a fairly religious man, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to have the Bible Mm -hmm. in the Cherokee language, so he he wrote a whole alphabet to uh, put the Bible in in Cherokee, and and they had newspapers in Cherokee, they were working on textbooks, novels, and uh, you know, they they, they had a uh, pretty... uh, high degree of technology you know part of it was borrowed from the general development of America at the time but you know presumably they made the same sort of innovations that the whites were making and they had their own literature and their own alphabet okay one other question and they were Christians
0: one other question before you go back to actually answering the question that I asked but do you think did they look like Iroquois did they
1: look like Indians Iroquois yeah well, you know, racially, they're, they're different than we are. Iroquois, In, no, no. People... Did
0: the Cherokee look the same as the Iroquois?
1: Well, there's, you know, from tribe to tribe, because of diet, because of the amount of sunshine they're exposed to, because of the way they dress, you can recognize the separate tribes, even though they're, they're of the same racial stock.
0: So Navajo and Cherokee are the same.
1: It's just like, you know, people move from Pennsylvania to Ohio. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well I mean we could say that. Okay. So there's not two distinct it's not like Chinese and and Vietnamese.
1: Well it would be more like Chinese and Vietnamese. I mean you could probably well, those people you can tell. You could probably visually look at them and say but or you know,
0: Italians and, and But they're all Dutch. Asian,
1: right? Uh, it's probably not that pronounced a difference. How about Dutch and French? It's it's probably probably it's more like French and Italians. Okay.
0: All right. Um, would you say that? Um, oh, you didn't quite finish. Could they have lived harmoniously up until now, in your estimation, if there was no
1: Indian Removal Act? I I tend to agree with Jackson that the uh, white settlers would have dispossessed the Indians. That they would have. Is that what he
0: said in his defense?
1: Uh yeah, that uh, the Georgian militia would have would have removed them, or destroyed them, killed them. I did mean, he it,
0: was he worried about committing a trustee against them?
1: Well, he claimed late in life, in retirement, that he did the humane thing—that he was trying to protect them. So, uh, how do you buy that? How, that? you know that's a that's a hard one because the you government personally do you buy it? the government is supposed to protect its citizens our citizens but we're also supposed to fulfill our treaty obligations and to protect citizens of other countries against our people and particularly armed incursions either by uh uh either by filibuster groups which was the old name for armed guys who or working without state sanction or from a, an attack by a state militia like the Georgia state militia okay. and and Jackson was very active in suppressing the nullification act in South Carolina I mean he definitely showed the vigor and, and the ability to suppress defiance of, of national law mm-hmm. so I, 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 I think we're justified in holding it against him That he wasn't willing to protect the rights, the dignity of the Cherokee and to fulfill the treaty obligations that the United States had with their nation. So you think he was sincerely believed what he said or he was just
0: in denial?
1: I think it was rationalization, you know, because he could have, if he had shown the same vigor in protecting the Cherokee that he showed in standing up to Calhoun and the nullifiers, they never would have been removed.
0: he charged as a racist in his era or not?
1: They believed in white supremacy. I mean, there must have been some
0: people who said that's racist. That
1: was the national, uh, you know, in, in, in Massachusetts, I mean, they killed Christian Indians in reprisal for raids uh, from the Algonquins during the French and Indian War. Uh, Jackson had fought pitched battles With Indian armies.
0: That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there must have been some people in in society who said, don't be racially prejudiced. And
1: they had the same... uh, They were treated the same way that the people printing the abolitionist tracts were treated. Their presses were burned. They were tarred and feathered. The uh, publications weren't distributed. What you're missing is that you can
0: do nowadays hate groups that are tiny, tiny fractions of... The general population would go out and do things like burn presses put put graffiti up stuff like that Threat threatening tactics you're saying that the mainstream in that period was, was the mainstream was racist, racist. and they, they were, were openly
1: racist and they were openly, and they were and they openly racist were not i mean they racist. called they called black people all oh. sorts of names uh they had, but there must have been people that
0: felt like there must have been a sizable group of people that do you think the term racist was invented then? No. There was no term racist. No, they,
1: I mean, like, like I'll give you an example. The uh, You know what a minstrel show is? Yes. You know, where a white actor will uh, burn a cork and then make his face black. Oh, you're talking with, about blackface.
0: Okay. He's about blackface. I thought minstrel you meant from the medieval period.
1: No, from American minstrel shows okay. where, you know, uh, white actors appearing in blackface and enacting... And, and uh, Skits and singing songs that ridicule the obtuseness, the laziness, the general lack of of ambition of of black people. Okay. That was the most popular form of entertainment at this time. The most popular. Yeah. So uh, there was, you know, there was no sense that people of color should be respected, that they had rights. Uh, you know, even even in a treaty uh, like we had with the Cherokee, treaty doesn't matter, you know, it's not an actual government. So when we he said he
0: was trying to do a humane thing, he wasn't pushing back against charges of racism, he was doing what?
1: He was uh, pushing back, I think, against charges of brutality, because, mm. I mean, it was pretty obvious, you know, even to a racist that, you know, we were in the wrong and that we were pretty bad to those people. So...
0: Is there anything else you want to... How do you... I mean, we're going to get to Legacy later, so we'll have another chance to talk about it, but is there anything else you want to add now about the Indian removal
1: and Jackson's role in it? So, um... Mainly that we probably would not have developed into the Federation. I mean, if we had had this, uh, Swiss cheese type of country with, yeah. with big uh areas outside our national sovereignty within the contiguous boundaries of the united states we probably wouldn't have developed into a unitary government so uh as much as we are at fault for not recognizing that we could have a multiracial racial country uh, we also probably couldn't have achieved any degree of national harmony, harmony and national unity if there were these, these autonomous regions in major parts of the individual states.
0: All right. Well, on that note, um, thanks for going over the Indian Removal Act. We're going to be finishing up with his legacy, in and in post-presidency and his legacy in our final episode on Jackson. So with that, we're going to sign off. I'm Philip. And I'm Robert.
1: And have a great uh day.